Hello, and thank you for listening. I'm Jay Lemons. Welcome to Leaders on Leadership, brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. The purpose of our podcast is to share the stories of the people and forces that have shaped leaders in higher education and to learn more about their thoughts on leadership in the academy. I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Joel Martin. Joel is the president of Wagner College in Staten Island in New York, a post he's held since July of 2019. He previously served in leadership positions at colleges and universities, both large and small, including Franklin and Marshall College, twice, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and the University of California Riverside. Joel is an extraordinary scholar. He's a noted expert on Native American religions and is an, the author and editor of several books in, in his field. Um, welcome and good morning, Joel. Good to see you, Jay. Good to be with you. Thanks for this opportunity to visit with you. Well, I am grateful for this opportunity, just as I am the great pleasure that I've had to be working with you over the course of uh, the past um, 18 months or, or thereabouts as we came to really know one another through the search that brought you to the Wagner presidency. And um, it was certainly out of that that I gleaned much about your background and came to appreciate who you are as an individual and as a leader. And I would love to have you share some of that story with our listeners and talk about some of the critical people, events, and opportunities that forged the person and leader you became as your journey in higher education unfolded. Thank you, Jay. Uh, yeah, that's a big question. There's so many people. I'm so grateful for the path that people have helped to open up uh, for me. I did concentrate when I was trying to think about this question a little bit on that period when I was at the University of California, Riverside, because on reflection, I can see I did kind of a double pivot there. I was a scholar of Native American religion and very proud of that work and really committed to that work. And it was at the University of California, Riverside, where I was able to translate the scholarly work into more applied work that would serve the tribal folks of Southern California. I started to partner with them. I was the Costo Endowed Professor, and I was very honored to build a relationship with the Pachanga and Luceno peoples of Southern California because I wanted the scholarship that I'd been doing to have actual utility in the world in a more direct way and to benefit the tribal people of, of the United States. And I was so honored to be a partner with them and to earn their trust. That experience then led administrators at the University of California, Riverside, the Dean, the Chancellor, Chancellor Cordova, Dean O'Brien, to sort of lift me up as an administrator and to trick me into becoming ultimately a Dean of a college there. And it was there that I pivoted more fully into providing the support for others who are doing scholarly work, our engaged scholarship, and obviously the teaching mission of the colleges and universities that we're so honored to serve. So I see that as a double pivot that occurred from being a scholar of you know, scholarship for scholarship's sake, primarily to impact a field among your peers, to being a scholar that's engaged in work that really immediately impacts communities and helps them advance their objectives, to then becoming an administrator of a college or university where you can really leverage the power of the research university or the colleges we're honored to serve to have an even bigger impact, but you're in more in the background. So it's been really an interesting journey. It's a long journey, there's so many people that have, you know, I've, I've been honored to work with, 
And I learned so much. And I would just really highlight the leadership that I learned from the Dean, uh, Pat O'Brien, and also Franz Cordova, who was the chancellor, but also the tribal members and chair, Mark Macaro, Gary Du Bois, just folks like that who helped you know, me learn what it meant for them to do their struggle and for how the university could be of service to them. They were really, they had a great vision. So I was privileged to serve, you know, really great leaders uh, from the tribal community and from the University of California. That's just a small cross section, but that's what launched me on this path to being a Dean and ultimately to become a president. Where now we're trying to make that impactful work here at Wagner through the practical liberal arts, through civic engagement, through our strong nursing program. Really honored to be here um, and hopefully to be able to help New York City rebound through this pandemic. Wow, thank you. Um, very interesting how your scholarship ultimately led you through application to um, the work and art of, of, of administrative um, uh, leadership. I, I, I wanna ask you to talk about because um, you also though have had the opportunity to serve um, a broad range of across sectors, public, private, large, and small. And uh, um, that doesn't happen very often either. How did those doors open for you and what impact did that have in, uh, in your discerning that Wagner um, uh, versus being um, you know, an executive in the University of California system uh, ended up being uh, your pursuit at this time in your life? It's, uh, well, I've been so fortunate to serve. And I think the throughput or the through line, I should say, for what unifies it is this desire to make, you know, to play a role in contributing to society and making the world a better place. And obviously the two universities I served have that deep in their DNA. They're land grant universities, the flagship University of Massachusetts Amherst and UCR, which is the second, you know, flagship uh, land grant university in the UC system and a, a, a place that was 40% uh, Pell eligible, first generation, Hispanic serving, super diverse. So there's that. And then the liberal arts college where we know we have an incredible impact on the lives of young people and we can really help them grow so much. And so marrying those two, marrying the, the liberal arts, high touch, small scale, intimate community that we treasure so much with an impact mission of an educational institution, I think Wagner is an exemplar of that union. It's been long renowned for the so-called practical liberal arts, but that goes back even further. Uh, we have a very strong nursing program that was established in 1943, part of the war effort um, mm -hmm. to help support uh, society and the United States during the World War II. So 80 years now, we've been doing a great nursing program, great PA program, you know, so it's an interesting hybrid, if you will, of a school that has a wonderful liberal arts programs that are helping students connect to the city and to the needs of society. Uh, we have a great theater program. And at the same time, we have strong professional programs. So for me, it's the perfect union of all that I've been doing through land grants and through my, the private liberal arts college of Franklin Marshall. So it's, it's like the hybrid perfect model for me. And I, I think it's great. I just love it. Oh, thank you. I want to I flip back and think about, again, that which in some ways was informed by the curiosity that led you to the scholarship and to a focus on Native peoples. Um, and think about those who have been 
harmed, marginalized, um, uh, not um, uh, uh, brought to the center of our work. I, I just think of this as another one of those through lines, as you said, um, of your career. Um, how do we improve equity and inclusion while embracing um, uh, and celebrating diversity? And I'd love for you to raise up how we might continue to um, move the needle to significantly increase the number of persons of color and numbers of women in leadership ranks in the academy? Well, yes, that's an absolutely critical priority for the well-being of our institutions. You know, our institutions need to reflect the society we live in. They need to support the society we live in. And we all benefit when we have a truly inclusive uh, culture in our leadership ranks. I don't have any secret ideas. I mean, I've worked hard to develop the diversity programs for faculty in innovative ways. We, we did cluster hiring at the University of California before it was a thing uh, and hired many uh, scholars of African-American culture. Uh, we've done the same thing at UMass Amherst and at Franklin Marshall. I did that with a Mellon grant to help diversify the faculty. Those were the, the areas that I focused on in my role as Dean. Uh, but you know, I do think that there might be a little bit of just as we've learned that some schools are underestimating talent among the student body, and we know that there's a mismatching occurring there uh, that we're trying to remedy through different initiatives, including the American Talent Initiative that, you know, Dan yeah. Portfield helped to launch at Franklin and Marshall. I think we need the analogy. We need to do the same thing in the administrative level. And I know people are working on it, um, NSF's working on it. There's not a professional organization that's not making it a priority. But I wonder if we don't need to cast our net a little more widely in terms of who we look for as candidates. I'm sure you're doing that in academic search. And it can't just be, let's go to the familiar places with the familiar pedigrees. I think we need to question, you know, where are we gonna find real talent, and real leadership? And we need to broaden our base. That's just a thought that, you know, comes to mind based on what I've seen. Uh, we can't just continue to go to the same portals and the same institutions. We need to really broaden our and, and see what, what people are doing at the community college, the Cal States, you know, what they're doing in small privates and really be aggressive about finding the talent wherever it is and however it's shining, people who are making a difference, not just look for the pedigree that we're familiar with, the standard pedigree. Uh, thank you. I, I do think that, um, uh, again, your sector um, uh, experience and range is a reinforcement of that. And um, um, it's been certainly my observation, having also served in, in both sectors, um, there's talent everywhere. And I love that you embraced um, the community colleges. There are enormously able um, uh, leaders in community colleges that uh, so often um, uh, we think, oh, they couldn't possibly uh, move between sectors. Uh, that's a part of it. Joel, I'd love to have you talk a little bit now about what in your mind makes a good leader. And by the way, by good, I don't mean grade B. I really am focused on what in your mind makes a good leader, virtuous and effective and a successful leader. I do think that it's our obligation and it's important for us to focus on our mission first and foremost, and we try to keep that central as a leader. And so as long as you hew to that, I think you'll be well served. So if you're a liberal arts college, you focus on the outcomes for students and you focus on that rigorously and you keep bringing that to the fore, 
and discussions with faculty and trustees and stakeholders and amid all the controversies we have to deal with, you keep going back to that center. And as long as you keep doing that, that'll help, you know, there's gonna be, you're not gonna make everybody happy, but if you keep casting your decisions around what's gonna advance the core mission, whatever that is at your institution, it's hard for people to really criticize you and they will come to believe that, okay, that person really cares about what we're supposed to be about. Now, if, it's a, if you're in an engineering school at an elite you know, research university and they're all about the research you know, impact, well, you better focus on that and you better be true to that. Uh, so I just think that that's the core thing. Have your compass set and keep going back to it. You'll get knocked off of it. The needle will move a little bit, move it back to true north and everything will work out. That's about all we can do. And then if that doesn't satisfy everybody and they decide that you need to move on, you can say, well, I was true to true north. That was, it was my moment to do that. And I did it the best of my ability and everything's fine. Let's move on. So that's, that's my approach to this. You know, now putting that in operation is a daily uh, seeking of homostasis and equilibrium and equanimity. And so we all need to work hard on that every day. And that's where your team comes in. I know you've got some thoughts about that as well. I'd love to share, you know, some thoughts I have about that as well. Thank you, Joel. The value and importance of having a North Star. Um, and you're right. Um, I always found, um, you know, the two questions that I would ask myself, what's in the best interest of my students and what's in the best interest of my institution? And uh, almost always in the, the most vexing of circumstances and situations, sitting back, uh, that is helpful. Thank you. Let's do pivot to team. What is it that you want and look for in the leaders that uh, are a part of your team? I'm, I'm a big believer, as you know, that leadership is not an individual sport. Um, it's a team sport or to switch fields completely. Um, it's not a solo act. Um, it's a small ensemble. And when you're thinking about your team, what are the qualities and characteristics that you want in those leaders? Thank you, Jay. Yes, I, you know, it is, um, yeah, I totally agree with you about the, the aspect of this is not a solo operation by any means. No president, no leader is successful without building the alignment with a team and with stakeholders internal and external. And that's a, that's a big job to do that. So that is a key word, I think, is alignment toward that mission that I just mentioned, that you want a team that we have the same direction, the same values in basic. Uh, we understand that together. We're all working on it. We also have some autonomy and initiative, and I want leaders who take initiative. I don't want leaders to say, well, this is the way we've always done it. We'll just keep doing that. That's not really leadership. That is a kind of performance. It's important. It's sustaining. It's useful. But in these times, we also need people who can take initiative and pivot to use the word du jour and also think ahead and sort of say, well, actually, we've been doing it this way, but we need to introduce a new way of doing it. And we need to learn from others who are out there in the world and they need to be sector experts and they need to look at the leadership of others and including going to a previous comment, what are they doing in the community colleges? What are they doing in embattled private liberal arts colleges? Because they're actually being really innovative. They have to be, they don't have the option not to be. And historically, a lot of our institutions have looked upstream to those who have huge endowments it's hard to learn from them because they're not necessarily, they're great schools, but they're not necessarily as hungry or as forced to innovate. So I want, I want uh, leaders who are aligned, who have initiative and are not scared to innovate. And then to, the final word would be to execute. And that's really a huge, huge 
uh, focus for everyone at this moment because you know the stakes have been so high this year for every leader on every campus. It's all about safety and we have to execute. So you always need to do that. It's one thing to have ideas and say they're doing this at this school and we can adapt it, but you've got to bring it, you got to bring it home. And so there, the final word, if I would, it goes right after that is another A word, which is accountability. So you have to take accountability for your sector, your division, your work, and then how it contributes to the team effort. And then the president has to hold everybody accountable, you know, to, to what they're held accountable to. So it, it all rolls up and we're all, you know, and it's, a, it's definitely another part of this. Um, it takes practice. It takes rehearsals. You don't, you don't play the score the first time perfectly. Uh, you're going to make mistakes. You got to be able to lean in. And, and also you got to have trust. You, know, you got to be able to, you know, express yourself, try things out. And certainly my team this year under enormous pressure has demonstrated that ability to have disagreement, to have argument, to raise counterpoints. And I value that also because that's the only way we're going to be able to get to the right outcome. So you got to have that atmosphere. It's not easy to create this. It really is not easy. And I appreciate all the work of folks like you who are out there talent scouting and finding in good talent for us as we continue to try to work to build these, these optimal teams in very difficult times. Well, thank you. You know, part of the joy of the work that we do at Academic Search is um, our, our parent organization is the American Academic Leadership Institute. Um, and as you just referenced, um, it's a commitment to growing the next generation of leaders. Um, and that's a part of what um, drew me to this uh, uh, organization and the work that we do. And uh, we know that a part of the listenership for Leaders on Leadership um, are those people who are aspiring to leadership. And I would welcome you offering a little bit of advice um, for those who are thinking about leadership in the academy today. Okay, well, I share my own personal perspective on this and it's probably not what everybody else says and it's like some, what some other people say, but it's very much just the way I've conducted my approach to everything, really to my career and everything, which is, you know, what is fulfilling to you? Who are you? What are your values? You really need to understand that. And you need to have that. You need to reflect on that. And then you need to find the match, you know, the institution, the opportunity where your skills, your talent and your values in your heart will serve that institution. And so it, it's definitely, for me, it's never been about, I need to achieve this position I need to achieve this pedigree. It's always about, you know, what is my role here? What's my purpose here? How can I help? And then trusting through this vetting process that occurs on these searches that the institution has the wisdom to find the alignment, the right person. And so if they pick you, you know, you got to make sure that that's really the right place for you. It's got to be mutual. If they don't pick you, you take that as evidence that this was not the real match and therefore it really wasn't going to work. And it's not really rejection. It's just a sifting. And so that's the advice I would give to people. Cause I know people apply, you go through the process, you start to get to know the institution and you, you start to imagine, Oh, it'd be really great to live in New Zealand. You know, and, you know, I'd really love to be there and I'd maybe be able to do all this work. And then you start to think about it and uh, it doesn't happen. And you get a little bit disappointed. You're like, Okay, just take that as a grain of salt. You learned a little bit more about your own trajectory. That wasn't really the right place. Just trust that that really wasn't the right place. And then when it does happen, this is what, it's almost like love and marriage. 
it's like then when you actually find the right place, you really do know it. I mean, you really do know it. It, it you know, the key fits, the door opens, and it will not be easy. It will be hard. It has all the frustrations. You know, I'm not talking about love and marriage. I'm talking about career. You know, it will be a really difficult uh, proposition, but you will be fueled by the fact that you have achieved the alignment and it'll be a joy. And then I think at the end of this, you can tell me, Jay, this isn't true. The time goes by fast. You look back and you say, I was at the, I was the right person in the right place at the right time for the right reasons. And then my time is done and I, I'm at peace with that. And now I'm moving on. That's what I think it, you know, I really, that's the way I've approached this. And it, it certainly has been the case for me finding my match with Wagner and Wagner with me. And I hope everybody feels that way, but that's the way it's been. And so this has been an extraordinarily trying year, unlike any that any president has ever felt anywhere, except for everywhere this year. And, you know, yet I, Jan and my wife and I are totally all in and fulfilled and feeling very proud of our community for how it has risen to this challenge. Thank you, Joel. I, I think really some profound nuggets there, um, uh, beginning with know thyself um, and know um, uh, what it is uh, that is that will bring meaning to your life. And, um, and out of that meaning is the passion that's necessary to sustain the, the inevitable ups and downs. And, um, and then, uh, you know, uh, that, 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 that sense of being in the right place um, uh, and the right time. And I, I agree with you. And uh, in my mind, um, when those things align, um, that's, um, that's fortuitous for the individuals, but it's also incredibly important um, because it is through continuity of leadership that there's a real capacity for, for making change. And so I, I really appreciate what you were saying. You also ended with, um, you know, that which feels like an elephant in the room. Um, and, and that is, wow, we're living through um, the most significant, you know, pandemic to impact um, our world in a century. And uh, that's out there uh, among the critical factors that are challenging higher ed leaders. But I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what you see some of the other challenges and maybe also comment on whether you see new or emergent skill sets um, uh, that are different than perhaps um, uh, the abilities of, of, of leaders in the past. So Jay, let me ask the question then, uh, is it that you want me to focus on other things other than managing through the pandemic? And uh, is that- I think what other challenges are out there? And, uh, and certainly uh, if you want to wax sure. upon, uh, upon the challenges of the pandemic, um, uh, uh, please do. But what are the other critical challenges out there? Well, there were, you know, I think the two go together because I, I, I use the metaphor of that, there, that higher ed had some comorbidities prior to the pandemic. So just as we know that the coronavirus attacks those who have underlying conditions, you know, as individual bodies, it, it similarly has done so for higher ed. Yeah. And so we're all familiar with those, uh, you know, pre-existing conditions of declining demographics in the Northeast of loss of trust and investment in the public sphere and in, in education generally, which is a severe long decade pro process that's been going on. And that's a big factor. Uh, the economics of our society that create great inequality and make it really harder and harder for a middle-class family to support the cost, which are real, to support a, a really good private liberal arts education. Um, 
you know, there's concerns about student loan debt. So there are a lot of pre-existing structural things that are out there that we will not, that will be there after the pandemic and with a vengeance, plus uh, a recession, plus, uh, you know, economic impact, plus unemployment, plus great societal needs. So uh, I could wax on and on about there's no lack of challenges, our need for leadership in such a context. And that's where the ideas, you know, ideas are going to be really critical. Uh, trying to pivot out of this is something that we're working on hard, uh, thinking about how we can be ready to help the world on the backside of this, and particularly our city of New York, which was the epicenter, is doing well now. But we feel very committed to being part of a partnership with that as we were before. And so we actually, you know, are trying to uh, glean optimism in this moment and think about, okay, all those things existed prior. We were hustling along, doing pretty well. We've got a diverse portfolio of programs, and some of those programs are going to be even more needed in the future. And there's no doubt about that. So we're making our we're we're not waiting to address those challenges. We're not waiting for the pandemic to pass. We're pivoting toward that future already, thinking about making investments in our physical plant and our programmatic development. We're thinking strategically, and that's a leadership role: is not to be trapped in the present in the present and a president should be thinking two years or five years ahead and asking the board to think 30 years ahead and so we are trying to do that work in a crushing environment which is existential you know we still are finding room to to say okay the world's going to need us more than ever afterwards uh we're not going to go away you know we've been here 101 102 years on staten island for example and we're going to be here another 101 or 102 years. And I'll just bring this home with a story. Just that I love this story because we had an alum named Peggy Bombach from Brooklyn, born in 1918, I think it was. She came here to Wagner and graduated in 1940. I think that's correct. You know, she had an extraordinary life. Her name, she, she married and became Peggy Reynolds. Just an extraordinary life. Took her to Europe during World War II. And then she comes back and she died in March of 2020, 2020. Uh, of old age, she was 101 years old, and she never forgot Wagner. She came back to Wagner in the fall, and I got to meet her. She wanted to be back to her campus. She never forgot it, and she gave us in her estate and her trust, and I'm the trustee of her estate, $8 million that just came in. So here we have this other thing about always thinking about the future and never thinking about the present and always thinking about how we are part of a long continuum. So she goes back to one the founder who brought Wagner to Staten Island. She knew Reverend Sutter. She knew President Stanton, who founded that nursing program I mentioned. And then I got to meet her, you know, in 2019 and you know, visit with her. And so that gift. So I see my role now is I'm looking at my class of 2020 who just graduated into a terrible economic environment. And I'm thinking there's a Peggy Reynolds in that group. And I need to be thinking about how we can support them. And I've gone on for a long time, but I'd love to describe another initiative that, that we have seeded during this pandemic that sort of captures our sense that you always think about the future and you always plant the seeds for a future that will benefit your institution in a long-term way. Well, I deeply appreciate your sharing that um, and uh, congratulations. And, and it's so true. Um, the very best um, that uh, we as leaders can do um, it's plant seeds. Um, it's not always ours to harvest. We're harvesting the seeds planted by others. And uh, I, I really deeply appreciate that. And um, 
in your framing and thinking about the pandemic um, in light of the larger challenges. Um, uh, beautifully done. Let me move us now to a little more of a, what I call a bit of a lightning round, where I'll ask you um, shorter um, uh, you know, questions with, with uh, um, I, I hope um, you can talk as long as you want on all of them. Let's start with this one. Who most influenced you? Impossible to answer. I mean, you got to go to your parents and your family, obviously your teachers. I mean, there's so many people. How do you dare to answer that question? My wife, Jan, I mean, how do you answer that question? It's such an extraordinary question. And I, I'm so grateful for all the people in my life. And you know, it's really hard to answer that. It really is. My parents, I have to go back to them in terms of how they valued education so highly. And they fed my love of learning without any limit. And, you know, they were from humble farm backgrounds in Arkansas, and they were just so supportive of my quest to learn, you know, and any magazine subscription, any activity I wanted to pursue. And they worked so hard to support my education. So there's no doubt I have to start with them. But then my wife, Jan, is such an extraordinary partner. I'm so privileged to have her in my life. She's a thought partner. Uh, uh, you know, she helps me keep on the North, uh, keep my North star in line. Um, and so I'm, I, from my parents to my wife, what can I say? They're just unbelievable influences on my life. I couldn't be more blessed. Thank you. Thank you. Are you a first generation college student? I am not. My, my dad was, a, he served in the Navy right after World War II. And on GI Bill, he got to go to Auburn University after playing baseball professionally, Jay, at the lowest levels from Arkansas. His arm took them out to the Southwest and he pitched in Team, farm teams and he got paid to play baseball therefore he's a professional baseball player and he ended up in Auburn and he got a master's there so he did go to college my mother who was just brilliant and is brilliant and is just great as lifelong learner she's just still learning right now she does zoom she does everything uh, she had a scholarship at the University of Arkansas um, you know, as the valedictorian her of her school in rural Arkansas noble Arkansas uh, but she gave that up to follow Bill Martin and his arm playing professional baseball in these little dusty towns in Texas and all over the place. And so, you know, that's the, the fact. So uh, that's so I'm not first generation, but I am very mindful that most of my family from that background, you know, they didn't have the opportunities by any means that I've had. Certainly my, my dad didn't, by the way, he was born poor and sharecropping family, as many Southerners were. And so it's the GI Bill that enabled him to get his education. Well, uh, perhaps, um, you know, that piece of federal legislation that has been so consequential to so many of our families. I, I appreciate your, your sharing that and, uh, um, and, and, and sharing your, your, uh, your, your mom's story as well, because I know the regard you have for her. And, and uh, I, 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 I gotta think um, uh, it would be so fun and interesting to have um, been a part of her parents' conversation about her following Bill Martin out there playing that darn game of baseball, um, uh, for goodness sake. Um, uh, but uh, you know what? It all worked out, right? Um, and there's a lesson uh, for all leaders. Uh, a lot of this will work itself out. <laughs> what book has had the most influence on you? Another impossible question. This is my main vice is books. And I just can't stop buying books and reading books. Um, 
But there is a book that I've taught as a professor and like a lot of professors, you, you get a book that you really like and you wanna go back to it and go back to it and go back to it. And in my field of Native American religion, it's a book called Wisdom Sits in Places. It's by the anthropologist Keith Basso, who was a student, I think he was a student at Harvard in the 50s and he, he, he somehow got connected to the Western Apache. And then he did a PhD, I think at Stanford. And then he immersed himself in the community and just became unbelievably uh, enmeshed and literate and fluent and just a key partner in that group's effort to preserve and to revitalize its culture. And he did this beautiful study of what the names of places mean. He's written many books, he's passed away, but he was just so highly regarded by the Western Apache himself. The book takes you into their worldview and it's such a rich, profound, developed, place-based wisdom, if you will, and it's not portable. You need to really know the places, you need to live with them, you need to hear the stories that are attached to specific places to become a wise person. It takes a lifetime of work, of letting the stories and the places work on you uh, to be a good person. Student, young people are disrespectful, they make mistakes, they go the wrong way, but these places will enable them to grow as people, to become more moral people, to become better people, to become better Apaches. This is you know, my quick takeaway, but it's a beautiful study. It's poet, poetic, intellectual, grounded. And it also has this unbelievable quality of helping you uh, have a sense of the humor and the grace and the grit of native people uh, in that particular community. Um, I tried to get him to come to one of the universities I worked at once, but he, was, he couldn't do it. He wrote back and said, he's got to take care of his cows. You know, he was just like the super grounded he sounds like a wonderful like, person. I never met him, but I really highly commend this book. It's a beautiful book and it helps you think about for a leader, you know, the virtues that the Apaches espouse are to have a smooth mind, a steady mind, a resilient mind. You know, I will never be able to do what they do. I'm not appropriating their culture, but I, I tell you what they aspire to create is a mind that can look to the future and have equanimity through stress and turmoil. And I know that I would love to have such a mind. So I, I respect that their wisdom tradition is so strong. Again, the title is? Wisdom Sits in Places. Thank you very much. Um, how, how ironic. I will tell you on Saturday, I officiated a wedding. And I was struggling with how to bring um, closure to this wedding. Um, which at the request of, of, of the, the, the wedded couple was, um, was um, more secular um, uh, than not. Um, and I closed it um, with a portion of an Apache wedding blessing. Um, so there you go. Um, thank you. What are your favorite school colors? Obviously it's, it's the Wagner colors of green and white. Here we are. So no doubt about it. No doubt um, about it. Go Seahawks, huh? Go Seahawks, absolutely. It's, it, yeah, absolutely. Do you have a fondest memory of your undergraduate experience? Uh, yeah, I do, because I, I was just talking to Jan, my wife, yesterday about college food. And those of us who went to school in previous decades know that at most places the food was not so great, you know? It really was not. And today you look at places like Wagner or where UMass Amherst, and they have buffets of all sorts of food and all sorts of stations, and it's wonderful. The point of this is food was not one of my most pleasant memories of an undergraduate experience. <laughs> but 
But you would go through the cafeteria and you have a tray. And we took those trays on a one snowy day on the hilltop at Birmingham Southern. It never snows in Alabama. Birmingham Southern's up on a hill. And for God's sakes, it snowed in Alabama. And so we took those trays and we found a higher purpose since the food that they were carrying was not so great. They were great for sledding down the hill. And that was a highlight. Everybody was just so joyous. There's no person who appreciates snow more than an Alabamian probably because we never get it, <laughs> never get it. And so when it happens, it's a big deal. And to repurpose those trays that have been such a, a source of discomfort and mystery, I'm wondering what that meat was that they were serving us and it turned it into a source of community uh, effervescence and joy. That was really great. So we slid down the hill all day long, just had the best time. I slid down the street. I mean, we just all over this, all over the snow. So that's a delightful memory. That is that is a together. wonderful one. And, and one of those that I think is, um, has been lost is so many campuses have moved to trailless dining. Um, <laughs> you know, the greatest loss of that is a, a good snow fun uh, a tradition. So favorite campus tradition for you at some place you've worked? Well, it's the same on every campus I've ever worked, and I bet it's the same for every president and dean and, and chancellor and faculty member. It's graduation ceremony, commencement ceremony, just to see all the work you've done, all the stress you've dealt with, all the lack of money you've had to contend with, and you see these young people come across that platform and receive their diploma, and you know they're going to go out and make the world a better place, and you really believe that, and it's just such joy. University of California, Riverside, we would have massive graduation ceremonies because many of them were the first in their family to go to school and the whole family would come and there'd be thousands of people there. Wagner College, beautiful ceremonies here. It means the same thing wherever you are. It's so transformative. Those are some of the best things. That, you know, that's true everywhere. I can't think of anything better. Now, Wagner College, we have something, we won't be able to do it this year, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, but midnight breakfast at the end of the semester and the kids just rock and roll. We have pancakes at midnight and they just have the best time in the dining hall. And it's, again, it's, that, it's the same thing I talked about, my best memory. It's this effervescent, just youthful joy, just sheer joy of being that's manifested. And I guess that is a little bit like commencement. This is just the, you know, it's the same thing, a punctuation point, just a great joy that occurs. Those are the two things, the Wagner tradition of the midnight breakfast, that we were privileged to see last year and then graduation wherever you are there's nothing better than graduation that's why we do this work that's why we're involved in this work that's why we take all the headaches and stresses and worries because we're going to be making a difference in the lives of not just individuals but families we're changing the trajectories of families every time we graduate a student amen if you hadn't worked in higher ed what would you have done Wow, that is a really hard question because when I was a little nerd in Alabama and taking the ACT, whenever you take that, they had a little bubble thing back then. And I put, I want to get a PhD. And I mean, I was like, wow. I knew that I wanted to pursue learning. And, you know, therefore, if I had thought a little more about it, an academic life, you know, I was thinking just learning is the main goal. I hear there's this thing called PhD. I think I want to get one of those. Uh, so it's hard for me to imagine. Uh, I would, uh, you know, I have the fantasy of having been a writer. You know, I grew up in the South. Very, uh, there were a lot of wonderful storytellers in everyday life, a lot of wonderful writers. And, you know, I did work for a newspaper at one point, you know, for, as a job. So 
you know, there's that fantasy of trying to be a writer. Now that, that probably would have brought me right back to the academy, though. Nowadays, yeah. that's where you end up if you're really, you know, you're trying to have a secure life. A lot of writers end up working in the academy. So I, I, I hate to say I have a poverty of imagination uh, in this regard. But, you know, there's nothing better than being a person who gets to learn a lot and teach a lot. I don't know how you can do any better than that. Uh, my brother's a lawyer. I did look at that. Again, you know, the analytical ability to learn. Yeah. But it's a different, I did not want to pursue that. So that was ruled out. I decided I definitely didn't want to do that. Well, you found your world and you found your place. And, um, you know, one of our traditions here on Leaders on Leadership is we like to close by asking our guests to share with our listeners the distinctive qualities, or if you will, organizational DNA that makes Wagner so very special to you and uh, to those that we serve. Well, thank you. Well, I've already alluded to a few of the points that is the fact that we have an extraordinarily strong liberal arts foundation, great arts program, top, you know, number three theater program in their country, really proud of our liberal arts commitment and also the practical liberal arts being embedded so that every student who comes here is going to be thinking about how they're going to apply their knowledge. They're going to do a lot of internships. Our location in New York City affords us extraordinary chances to be involved in every sector of life. And students get to be involved in that. We have a very good seamless transportation system with a van and the ferry goes right by the Statue of Liberty near Manhattan. We can see Brooklyn. But we also have these great professional programs that are going to be growing and that are important in the health sciences and in business and in education. So it's that combination. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The location is magical, unbelievable. We have a beautiful campus. It's a, it looks like you're in rural New England. It's an iconic campus. It's used in films. When people want to say, what does their college campus look like? They come to Wagner and it's just unbelievably beautiful and poised and calm. The best thing though, of all, the, all of that I've described is probably the loving culture that exists within the community. Our students have been, our, our faculty, our students, our staff, it is a very supportive, intimate, warm place where people have each other's back and it's very inclusive. It's been just really remarkable to see. We've had, we, you know, the nation is being shaped by lots of things. We are actively involved in everything that's going on in our country, but we also have a, a community that supports each other through that and that we have a home. Everybody has a home here that's really a, a, a center that from which they can go out and make a difference in the world and then come back and be restored and then go out to New York or go out to the hospital as our first responders did during the pandemic, heroically contributing and continue to do so today. So we're very proud of that sort of movement. We're not isolated, we are connected, but we're in a place of peace that enables us to do our best work for society. So I, that's the DNA of Wagner that I see, and I'm so privileged to be part of this community. Well, thank you, President Joel Martin, for joining us on Leaders on Leadership and for sharing your thoughts about leadership and for ending with sharing that which was a part of the special call that brought you to Wagner College. We're glad to have had you and appreciate um, um, your time this morning. Listeners, we welcome your suggestions and thoughts for leaders we should feature in upcoming segments. You can send those to leadershippodcast at academicsearch.org. You can find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you find your podcast. It's also available on the Academic Search website. 
Leaders on Leadership is brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. Together, our mission is to support colleges and universities during times of transition and through leadership development activities that serve current and future generations of leaders in the academy. Again, it's been a special pleasure to have had Joel Martin on our show today. Thank you, Joel, for joining us. Thank you, Jay. Always a pleasure to visit with you.